All right, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Matthew, this time chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Today is, of course, the first day of Holy Week. According to biblical tradition, today marks the beginning of the last week of the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry, the last week of the Lord Jesus' life. It's what's known as Palm Sunday when Christ made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But he didn't come and come to Jerusalem just to observe the feast of Passover. He didn't enter Jerusalem to continue to teach and perform miracles and continue his ministry. He did not come to overthrow the Roman government. Christ had one, one purpose. He came to Jerusalem to die. He came to Jerusalem to be offered up as the propitiation for all who would call upon his name for the salvation of their souls. To be offered up as the perfect sacrifice for wretched sinners. So I want you to think with me back. Think back some 2,000 years to the first century, Palestine. And imagine that we're there inside of Jerusalem and all of a sudden you hear a great commotion. You turn and you see a mass of people coming toward Jerusalem and at the center of this mass of people is someone riding some type of animal that you can't seem to make out just yet. You can't just you can't seem to make out what the animal is because there's so many people. And the people are excited and chanting something and creating a great big commotion. Now if you would look with me at our passage today of Matthew chapter 21 beginning with verse 1 and as we think about the triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 21 beginning with verse 1. Hear now the word of the true and living God. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent to, then sent Jesus to disciples saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find a donkey and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon a donkey, and a colt, the foal of the donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they sat him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, others cut down branches from the trees, and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to read and hear your inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. Father, we pray that as we take the precious time that we have remaining, 
to focus upon your word and look at a historical event was monumental to the salvation of our soul where we see our prophet, our priest, and our king, the second part of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, seated upon the donkey, coming as the meek and mild servant, our Savior. Help us, Lord, to focus on the things that you would have us to take away from here, Lord. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive, but ultimately, Lord, give us wills to obey your commands. All these things we ask and pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Here we see the Lord Jesus arriving to Jerusalem with all of the class and regality and sophistication seated upon a donkey, surrounded by a multitude of people as Jesus is prepared for the final week of his earthly ministry. We see Jesus arriving to begin a week that would forever change the course of human history with his substitutionary death upon the cross on Friday, followed by his victorious resurrection on Sunday. But here on the first day of the week, we see a rather humble coronation of sorts. We see a rather humble coronation to the Lord Jesus. You and I don't really have a good, proper understanding of what a coronation looks like. Um, We would have to look to documentaries or to our uh, neighbors uh, across the pond to the British. Um, if the Queen of England were to pass away in our lifetime, we would, you know, see, get to watch on television uh, what a, and see what a coronation looks like with all of its pomp and circumstance. A royal, uh, cor- a royal coronation and a presidential inauguration are similar in a lot of ways, but um, still a lot, a lot different. Uh, in many others. We don't really have a, a good understanding of what that entails. But the Romans that occupied Jerusalem at the time knew exactly what a true triumph looked like, at least to them. And so for them, the Roman soldiers that would have been in Rome seeing Jesus coming uh, uh, on the donkey with a parade of people, they probably would have snickered a little bit. Because whenever a Roman general was victorious on fo- foreign soil, killing a a bunch of the enemy and gaining new territory, he was given a Roman triumph when he returned to the city. It was the Roman equivalent to our ticker tape parades, only with much more splendor. The victorious general would be permitted to put on display the trophies that he had won and the enemy leaders that he had captured. You think back to when we studied the book of uh, Jonah and how we talked about how the Ninevites would, when, when they conquered uh, a, a, a nation, they would, they would parade down the streets when they came back to Nineveh with the, the, the bodies of the, the, the people that they had conquered as trophies, signifying how, 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 how great a conquer they, they had just accomplished. Uh, Romans would do something similar. And they would, they would carry on this parade all through Rome and it would end at the Colosseum where some of the captives would entertain, would, would, would entertain the rest of the people by being thrown into the Colosseum to fight wild beasts. But the triumph that was given to the Lord Jesus was very much different. 
And I want us to look at this, look at this passage and look at five points. I've outlined this passage with five points to help us kind of understand all the commotion that was going on that day in Jerusalem and what the eternal significance, what the eternal, eternal ramifications were um, that we can draw out of this. Verses one, verses two and three, we see a, uh, the readying, the preparation or the readying. Look what it says. The Lord Jesus saying unto them, go into the village over against you and straightway you shall find a donkey and with a colt and lo- uh, loose with a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, the Lord hath need of them and straightway he will send them. I want to point out a couple of things from these verses. Um, Christ commands two of his disciples to go fetch him a donkey and her colt. And when he gives that command, there was no questioning on the part of the disciples, right? There was no, there was no murmuring about who was going to do it. It was like, well, you know, Jesus, I've went and fetched the last 50 things that you needed. How about you get somebody else? Uh, uh, no, I don't feel like it. No, I've got a bellyache or, or, or whatever. There was only obedience. The Lord Jesus said, go, and they did. He commanded and they went. There was no murmuring. There was only obedient action. And Christ tells the disciples going after the donkey that when they are challenged by the owners, and they, and they are challenged by the owner in Luke's account of the story, in Luke chapter 19, verses 31 through 34, Jesus says, simply tell them the Lord has need of them. Lord means Adonai in the Hebrew and Kyrios in the Greek. It's the highest title that's given to God in the Old Testament. It means the sovereign one, the one who has all authority and all power. And it's the same title that is bestowed upon Jesus in the New Testament. The early church would have great difficulty with that because the Romans did not care if they were Christians. Fine, whatever. They didn't care if they worshiped Jesus as God. It was fine. But what upset the Romans was this matter of Jesus being curios, of being Lord. Because to Rome, there was only one Lord, and that was Caesar. And many of our brethren, many of our early brothers and sisters in Christ were taken to the Colosseum themselves to have to fight lions or even went to be crucified themselves because they would not offer a pinch of incest and utter two words, Kaiser, curios, Caesar is Lord. They knew that there was only one true Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. Caesar was not him. Now back to our text. The owner of the donkey and her colt would know immediately, as soon as he heard those words, the Lord has need of them. Knowing that they were not referring to an earthly nobleman, but rather the promised Son of God, the Messiah. This little humble ordeal is a perfect example of just how sovereign God is. Every little detail is worked out. Every little detail is is worked out. It was planned in eternity past, foretold about hundreds of years before it came to fruition, and then it is actually brought to fruition. This shows that God is deeply at work weaving together His story all throughout history, down to the very animal that Jesus would ride, a donkey. Not a Clydesdale, not a cutting horse, not a quarter horse, but a donkey. And the owner would hear those words, the Lord needs them, and the Holy Spirit would communicate to their spirit, and they would release them. 
Not to mention that the owner you know, would know once he realized who it was that was uh, asking for the, the donkey and her colt, would know, hey, it belongs to him anyway. Psalm chapter 50 verses 10 and 11 tells us that for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all of the foals of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. God owns it anyway. It's all his. We're just leasing it out for the moment. All it took for that owner to, uh, of this donkey to turn loose of it was just to hear the Lord needs it. Let me ask you this morning, what does it take for you to let go of whatever it is that the Lord needs out of you? Doesn't have to just be money, although our finances are an important part of it. We should want to invest in the Lord's work, right? We should want to uh, 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 see it as a joy to invest in the Lord's work that we could, that the little portion that he's, that, uh, of, of what he's given us, we take, give it back to him and that he uses it, blesses it, uses it in his kingdom and that one day we may be able to stand before him and lay down a crown that was won because of our investment into his work. So that yes, there is a financial aspect of it, but, um, Everything that we've been given, everything that we've been given is directly given from the hands of God. James chapter 1 verse 17 tells us every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father of lights. But yet, sometimes, you know, we don't invest in to the Lord with our finances and our time and the talent that we have. We put it in other areas, right? And then if there's a, anything left over, We'll give God the scraps. We'll give God a little bit of the leftovers. Think back to the first message that I preached this year where we were considering the gift of time. The precious gift of time. I I talked about it in in, in, uh, the prayer room before the service began. So many people with all the car wrecks that we talked about that that have been happening. How many of those people got up that morning and said, today's the day I'm going to die. I guarantee you, none of them thought that. It probably never even entered their mind. It was just matter of routine. Hey, I'm leaving the house. I'm going to work. Hey, I'm going to town. I'll be back. And I'll be back doesn't happen. None of us know how much time we actually have. And how much of it do we give to the Lord? How much of our how much of our day does the Lord get? What part of our day does the Lord get? Does he get the first part? Does he get somewhere in the middle? Does he get a portion at the end or does he get any at all? Ephesians chapter 5 verse 15 says, "See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, doing what? Redeeming the time, for the days of evil, for the days are evil." Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. What is the Lord's will for our lives? For him to have first place. Very first place for him to be at the center of our lives. And that's something, that is a, that, that is a keynote that is all throughout Scripture. That God is to be at the very center of our lives. You think about when the uh, Israelites were in the wilderness. When they were traveling for those 40 years, and even though they, 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 they couldn't go into the promised land, right? And they would have to set up the camps. What would they have to set their camps up around? The tabernacle. Why? Showing that 
God is to be the very center of our lives. And when he's not, it emits chaos. We see that in the culture. When God is void from being at the center of our lives, the center of our communities, the center of our culture, it emits, it evokes, it brings chaos. So whether it's money, talent, or time, God doesn't ask for all that we have. He only asks for a portion. But it's all his anyway. Point number two, verses four and five, we see the reason. We see the reason behind all of this. Look what it says. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, that thy king cometh unto thee meek, and sitting upon a donkey, and a colt, the foal of a donkey. What we see here is the Lord Jesus putting the final touches upon his earthly ministry, making the last bit of preparation to fulfill prophecy that was given hundreds of years earlier. And if you think about it, everything that the Lord Jesus ever did was in fulfillment of preordained and, pre- and, and the predetermined plan of God to restore sinners to the right, uh, right relationship with the Father. And here was just another example of one of those prophecies. Some 500 years before Jesus would sit on top of that donkey, Zechariah would pen these words, Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey and upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. The provision that was made by the people here in preparing the way in, 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 in their, 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 their uh, uh, act of worship and in, in, in their act of, 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 of taking the palm branches and, uh, and laying them down and their garments of clothes down on the ground and they're putting the garments on the back of their donkey. That act was, was that provision that they were making by the people here. It was very poor and very ordinary. And it speaks to Jesus when he said that his kingdom was not of this world. Earthly kings would not think about sitting on top of something like a donkey. I mean, really, we think of um, the royal family in, in, in Great Britain, right? Do you really think Prince Charles would even look upon a donkey, much less sit on one and go for a ride? No. No, it is beneath them. They want the finer things, right? They want to ride in the Rolls Royce. They want to. They they they, they want to uh, ride in the uh, in the Lincoln Town cars, the stretch limousines. They want the ease and 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 the and the, the the finer things. They want everything to be made of gold, silver, and platinum, right? But here's Christ sitting sitting on top of. In our minds, what we know about here in the states, what used to be just a work animal, right? You don't go to donkey shows. You go to horse shows where where where. You know, people ride them and and, and get to sh- and show off how beautiful and majestic they are. Get them to jump jumps. Not a donkey. Donkey's just a work animal. But here we see the the King of Kings and the Prince of Peace sitting upon a donkey. No heralds at arms provided. No trumpet yet. No chariots of state. No great big royal parade with all of the pomp and circumstance, even though Jesus could have had it. Psalm 18 verse 10 says, and he rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yeah, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. Jesus could have had whatever he want. 
but he chose to ride upon the donkey. And this depicts Christ and shows us that he is indeed the Emmanuel, God with us. We see Christ as the meek and humble example that we are to follow. And on earth, everything that Jesus Christ had was borrowed. He never owned anything. Everything that he ever used was borrowed. You think about when he fed the multitude. He got the bread and the fish from somebody else. The very tomb that he is going to be buried in was borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus would even say in Matthew 8, verse 20, the foxes uh, have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. And here we see Christ borrowing the very donkey that he would ride upon in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. What does that tell us? It tells us that we really don't need to put any value in what the world treasures, in the treasures of this world. All the vehicles, as pretty and as fancy as they are, they're money pits. They lose value as soon as you drive them off a lot. They're really only meant to get you from point A to point B. Houses extravagant and as luxurious as they can be, they'll wear away over time. And money, as large as a pit as you can, as large as a pile as you can grow it, you can go through it in no time flat. Let one little catastrophe happen. And it's gone. And if you are able to hold on to it till you die, that Wells Fargo truck won't be following your hearse. But what you do with Christ can build an eternity that no one can fathom. And that's where we're to lay up our treasures. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. The Lord Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where does your treasure lie, folks? What is it that you cherish more than anything? Is it something that you own? Is it a family heirloom that's been handed down from generations? I'm not saying that appreciating and taking care of those things is bad. It's not. But nothing should take the place of the precious one known as Jesus Christ. Point number three, verses six and seven. We see the response. Look what it says. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded. They went and did as Jesus commanded. Obedience to God in action. No murmuring, no back-talking. There was no, go get a, a, a mule, a donkey, why? Well, why don't we, you know, talk to Judas, sit down with him, have him, you know, count the money in the bag and see if we can't get you something else, see if we can't get you something else to ride on. There was just complete obedience. There was just complete obedience. There was no murmuring in between the disciples. Well, I don't want to go this time. You go. It was just complete obedience. Remember, there's one here today that the Lord is dealing with you about something to do for him. Maybe the Lord is, is dealing with you and been working on you about someone to go share your faith with. Maybe the Lord is dealing with you about a place, about you needing to uh, get involved in his work somehow, about putting that gift to use that we talked about for several weeks. Maybe the Lord is dealing with you about a, the final hurdle to, to get over with a particular sin that you keep fooling with. That way you can have victory over it. God has spoken on all of those matters. We are to share our faith. 
We are to put our gifts to use in the local church. And we are to kill the sin in our lives. But do you keep piling up the excuses? Because if you keep piling up the excuses, God will just keep bringing answers to those excuses. Remember Moses? Remember Moses in the book of Exodus chapters 3 and 4? God calls Moses to go to del- and be, uh, be his instrument to bring the Hebrew people out of Egyptian bondage. Go to Pharaoh and, 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 uh, and, and uh, t- tell him what I tell you to tell him. But Moses gives an excuse. His first excuse is, who am I that I should go? God answers that by saying, it's, it's not about you. I'll be with you. Excuse number two, Moses says, well, when I come to the children of Israel, who am I going to say that sent me? God answers by saying, I am that I am. The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses keeps piling on the excuses. Well, what if the Israelites don't believe that you have appeared to me? So what does God do? God answers by empowering the staff that Moses had. The one that would turn into a snake when he cast it down. The one that would turn the Nile River into blood. Excuse number four, Exodus chapter four, verse 10. Moses said unto the Lord, I'm not an eloquent man. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So God answers that too, says, Aaron, your brother will be with you and speak for you. God sends Aaron to to help Moses. Every time Moses had an excuse, God had an answer for that excuse. But here in our text of Matthew 21, we see we don't see excuses. We see obedience. The Lord commands and they obey. The Lord commands and they obey. And you might be thinking, they're just sending him to fetch a donkey. It had to be done. In order for Jesus to ride on a donkey and fulfill Old Testament prophecy, there had to be one retained. And some believe that it may have even been James and John or Peter and John that went to go fetch the donkey. What's the significance in that? Because those three men were Jesus' inner circle. Those were three that were closer to him than any of the other disciples. They were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus uh, uh, was transformed into his glorified state with Moses and Elijah. And then later on this week, when the Lord Jesus is about to be arrested, they go into the Garden of Gethsemane for Jesus to pray, right? And he takes Peter, James, and John a little further than he did the rest of them. So this is significant because it shows us that in the grand scheme of God Almighty's eternal plan, there are no such things as small, menial, or mundane tasks. Everything has a purpose. If it's done for the Lord, whether it's preaching from a platform, from a pulpit like Billy Graham, or whether it's being underneath that platform, underneath that pulpit, praying, which would what uh, uh, Billy would do just about every time that he did he did preach. He would have people underneath the pulpit praying for God to open eyes, for God to soften hearts, for God to save souls. One is just as important as the other in the uh, purposes of God. Everything done for the Lord carries an eternal weight and truly works. God uses to work towards all things working together for good. And so here in our our text, we see this obedience. Obedience that would not just carry on to to, to go fetch the mule or or, or the donkey, but it, it would carry on and become stronger and stronger and more passionate after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. 
obedience that led those men to horrible and excruciating deaths. And it was obedience that laid the foundation for you and I to be here today. Something that's missing from the church. Something that's missing from the church as a whole in this day. Folks, we, 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 we see the things that are happening in the world around us. And we wonder why it won't stop. I'll tell you, because the church needs to be the church. We have the healing balm. We have the antidote. We have the, the, the vaccine in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the, with the, with the, the flag bearers, the, the flag bearers, the torch bearers, it's come to us. We're to take that and we're to proclaim that message. Proclaim it to the people that we work with, to the people in our, in our neighbors, those in our families that don't know Christ, and even strangers on the street. Do we need to be the used of the Lord? And what happens? We plant seed, and it's up to the Lord to water it and make it grow. We'll water it with prayer, but it's up to the Lord to make it grow. But he saves this one. And then they, in turn, they get in a good Bible-believing church. They get on fire for the Lord. They go tell somebody. Another person gets one and on and on and on. That's how the culture has changed. Through us obeying, trusting and obeying what the Lord commands. Point number four, rejoicing. Look what it says in verses eight and nine. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. And others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes went before that and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Until this point, Jesus had avoided Jerusalem. Jesus had avoided Jerusalem for much of his ministry. Jerusalem was the capital of the Jewish nation. This is where the temple was. This is where every able-bodied Jewish male had to uh, make a pilgrimage uh, for the feasts of Tabernacles, Passover, and Pentecost. This is where the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, would be, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, where they would later on in the week, where they would convene to try to figure out how to capture him, where they would uh, 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 get Judas, where they would, where, where they would uh, pay Judas off to uh, betray the Lord Jesus. But here in our text, we see rejoicing. We see rejoicing from the people. And I would dare say that most of these, most of the people in this multitude had probably just only heard of the Lord Jesus in legend. They had only heard verbal stories of the miracles and the teachings of the one that they believed to be Messiah. So they are giving him the best royal treatment as they can. As Lori said, no, start over. No, start over. That's what these people were doing. They didn't have gold. They didn't. Have, they gave him the best that they could, the very best that they could. And if that meant to them taking the shirt off of their own back and putting it upon that donkey so that the Lord Jesus would have somewhat of a comfortable seat, if that meant that they, they took the shirt off of their back and put it upon the ground, and if they couldn't do that, they would cut down palm branches, which is where we get uh, Palm Sunday, and lay them on the road, because they couldn't put rose petals if they, they did that because they wanted to give him the very best that they can to show reverence, obedience, appreciation, and worship. This rejoicing is an act of worship. 
Here we see this multitude beholding Jesus in the way that he is beheld. Not a genie in a bottle. Not as some trinket or good luck charm that we rub like a rabbit's foot when we're worried about something. And he's not some divine butler who is just supposed to jump at our beck and call. These people saw him for who he truly is and who he truly was and who he truly is as the Alpha and the Omega. As the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the light of the world, the sweet rose of Sharon, the fairest of 10,000, that friend that sticks closer than a brother, the great shepherd of the sheep, the way, the truth, and the life, the bright and the morning star, the hope for his people, Emmanuel, God with us, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. And that's another problem with Christianity today is that we have a wrong view of who we are and a wrong view of who God is. Uh, And if some of you have one of these in your house, I'm sorry. But there is these popular t-shirts and coffee mugs and little plaques that people like to hang that say, I just need a little bit of coffee and a whole lot of Jesus to get through the day. He is the master and the creator and the savior of the world. And he is certainly more than something you can get out of your pantry to help you get through the day. The problem is, is that we don't see him in that light enough. We don't have the deep appreciation that is needed to behold him as Lord, as master. You see, people, people don't have a problem. I've said this many times. People don't have a problem with hearing or saying Jesus is my Savior. A problem with that means he's doing all the work. He's doing all the saving. He's doing all the ransoming. He's making things better for me. But what people have a problem with is when you say Jesus is Lord, that means he's the sovereign. That means he is the master. That means he's more important. And we are. And that's a tough pill to swallow. That's a tough truth to face. But these people here, common people, Mark's gospel tells us that the common people heard him gladly. I can identify with that. I'm as common. I'm just as common as they are, simple-minded. They heard him gladly. And they were worshiping him with all that they had. It was almost like... like John the Baptist said, John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. So we see this rejoicing as an act of worship, but it's also another, another act of readying, of preparing the way. The multitudes thought that they were preparing, you know, they, some thought that they were preparing the way for uh, uh, Jesus to come and, and deliver them from the Roman rule, to get Rome out of there. So they would become an independent, sovereign nation again. What time for that yet? They didn't understand the eternal need that Christ had to meet first. He first had to suffer. There was still a great need that had to be filled. The ancient Jews could not do it by trying to keep the law, and we can't do it now by trying to keep the law or or trying to amass worldly being worldly good, being good by the world's standards. I talked about it last week. There's no such thing as a good person, at least not in the eyes of God. God demands perfection. He commands perfection and he deserves perfection. A perfection that we're incapable of attaining. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees missed the fact that Jesus was and is the Messiah. 
And as the multitude missed, may have missed the fact that he was not coming yet to, his, to, to uh, set up his earthly kingdom just yet, to set up that millennial kingdom, the people of the world today, in our day, missed the fact that the greatest need that they have is to be made right with God. Take note of the two titles that Jesus is referred to in this, in this passage. He's referred to as Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He's referred to as, as, as Lord, as King and Lord. Verse 5, he's referred to as, as King, and he's also referred to as, as Lord. King, he, he is the, the, uh, uh, the honorable King. If he's a, um, the people didn't have a problem with Jesus being, with being king because they're hoping that, uh, he would be a good king, that they would be provided for, that they would be defended. He would be an honorable king and not like some that they had had like Saul. But then the title of Lord and Master, again, I said that's a, the hard pill to, uh, to swallow. Because when you say that Christ is Lord, you're saying that you have to submit to Him, that you have to obey what He commands. So as John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus' earthly ministry, the multitudes here are really preparing the way for Jesus to finish things up, for Jesus to go to the cross. And look at it, look at what they say. The people that are before, the people that are in front of him, and the people that are behind him are crying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed he that come in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us. Save us now and save us in the future. The people are crying, save us now and save us in the future. Save us now. Save us, deliver us from this Roman oppression and save us in the future. Jesus was coming to save them, but to save them from their greatest need, the need to be made right with God. And Jesus is going to answer that cry of Hosanna on Friday. He's going to answer it with one word. The people cry, Hosanna. People cry, save us now. Save us in the future. Jesus is going to cry in the Greek, Tetelestai. It is finished. The people cry, save us now. Save us in the future. Jesus says, it is finished. And as they went forth crying, Hosanna, preparing the way for Jesus' entry, we see as they went forth crying, Hosanna, preparing the way for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, you and I who are saved, redeemed, children of God, we're to be obedient and be about the Father's business now, preparing the way for Him to return. And scoffers, you know, they say all they want, where's the the promise of of His coming? It's all around us. It's all around us we see it. All around us, we can see we see the, the, the depravity in, the, in society unfold. We see it on our, our TVs and in the newspapers. Christ is soon to return, in my opinion. The question is, are we preparing the way? Are we doing what we should be doing to prepare the way of the Lord? Are we doing what we should be doing to go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in? Are we rejoicing and praising God that one day, maybe very, very soon, that trumpet could sound and in the twinkling of an eye, we could be out of here? Is that a reason for us to rejoice? Do you have excitement about being a Christian? Some people don't, and that's a real big turnoff for the Lord, is when they look at us and our face just looks like a donkey that Jesus was riding, just long and depressed all the time. Woe is me. Don't you want what I have? 
We should be filled with more joy than any other human being on this earth because we know the Savior, because we know the Master. Point number five, we see the response, verses 10 and 11. It says, and when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved. Not some of the city, but all of it. All of it was moved. Everyone in there heard that ruckus. They heard that commotion and went to go see what was it about. Now, I guarantee you not everyone was excited to see Christ coming on that, on that donkey. The Romans probably snickered and made fun, just like they will when he hangs upon the cross. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees probably looked at him in disgust. Some people just probably looked at it and they were confused, didn't understand. But regardless, all the city was moved. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he gets people's attention. The attractiveness and the magnetism of Christ as he is revealed in the Bible is just uncanny. Everywhere he went, he could draw crowds with his miracles or simply with his words. And when you read the Gospels, you see God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And when you see Christ interacting with people, you see mercy, love, and beauty in its purest and highest form. That's what we're to imitate. We can't do the miraculous, but we can imitate the love. We can imitate the love. We are to love to the point that it hurts and then love some more. Now, that doesn't mean we compromise. That doesn't mean we compromise on Scripture. If God has said something is wrong, we can't change that. But we are to love, and the most loving thing that we can do sometimes is to tell someone the truth. In a a world that is lost, broken, and sin-cursed, it needs the love of Christ to captivate people to Him. When we are obedient and submitted to the uh, will of God in our lives, then that's going to flow from us. That's going to exude from us. People are going to be able to look at us and say something different about that person. They don't talk like everybody else that I know. They don't dress like everybody else that I know. They don't take part in the same water cooler talk. They aren't gathered around somebody else's, somebody's cell phone whenever there's a dirty picture floating around. They're different. They don't have an air about them of arrogance, but there's something about it that I can't put my finger on. And if the Holy Spirit is drawing that person, what it is that they're seeing is attractive. I want to know more about that. And they'll want to know why you don't walk, talk, and act like everyone else. What causes you to act the way that you do act? And when they ask you, you know, what's the difference? What's it all about? You'll answer the way the multitude said in verse 11. Because Jesus, the prophet, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee, it's because of him. It's because of him and how he has ransomed me and changed me and bought me, purchased me. I'm his. And now because of that, everything that I do, I do for him. The folks understood that in that moment when they saw him and they cried, Hosanna, save us, save us now and save us in the future. And Jesus answers that cry. He still answers it. If someone cries out from the depths of their soul to be saved, Christ still answers to tell us die. It's finished. 
Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the historical record that we read about the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ. How he rode in in humble, misunderstood fashion. And all the glory and the elegance and the prestige of a farm animal coming to fulfill his purpose for coming to earth to begin with, to be that perfect sacrifice. God help us, Lord, to cry, to rejoice as the people did and rejoice in saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in what Christ did. Help us to rejoice in what he went through. Help us to rejoice in the fact that we know Christ as Savior. We thank you and we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.